Well, after the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing from hymn 32, Christ the Lord is risen today. Well, I encourage you to have your Bibles open before you to Acts 9 again, as that will be our text, verses 1 to 19. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine that you were to get a letter from a pastor who was applying for a position in the church. And perhaps that letter would start something like this. I am almost 60 years old. I've been in the ministry for about 25 years. Among many things said in the letter about all the experiences of being in the ministry, including being jailed and beaten for a testimony in Jesus Christ. This letter of application would also say, I am a strong leader, but I'll be frank with you, I'm not always popular and I've been expelled from a number of cities where I ministered. In fact, before I was a Christian, I persecuted the church. I put people in jail. I'm guilty of committing murder. I was violent and the church was afraid of me because of my actions. But because of that, Because that's all behind me now, I obtained mercy in Jesus Christ because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Nevertheless, I hope that you will consider my application to be your pastor, signed the Apostle Paul. Well, I'm sure if you knew that this wasn't the Apostle Paul writing that letter, you would second guess whether you would want a man like that in your midst. But that gives us kind of an idea as to the immediate context, the events of what's taking place here. Putting yourself in that position, you can understand how the church must have felt. Saul of Tarsus was, in his own words, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. He fought against God. Through his life, Paul remembered his hostility toward Christ and the church. He was an enemy of the Messiah. His hatred and his aggressiveness cannot be excused. But this enemy was conquered. He was vanquished and overcome by grace. The Lord Jesus did a work of subduing enemies to himself. And these memories impressed on him the blessing of God's grace. And we can say that this conversion is one of the most important in the life of Christ's church because of the impact that this has had, even on our own very existence today. A man used greatly by God, as this man essentially was a trophy of grace, of salvation, and of God's sovereign power. And so the story is familiar, but I call you to hear it anew this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit and by looking at an enemy conquered and overcome by God's grace. And we'll look at this with three points. First of all, the persecutor of the church. Secondly, the encounter with Christ. And then thirdly, the reaffirmation of Jerez, of grace. So first of all, the persecutor of the church. Well, the account of Saul's conversion begins where Luke leaves off 
at the end of chapter 8, verse 1 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, and he's raging now. He's in a mindset of threatening and throwing the disciples of Jesus in jail and even killing them. He went to the high priest. He asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, which was about 150 kilometers north of Jerusalem and a bit, a bit east as well. So that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And the high priest had the power to issue warrants to the synagogue in Damascus for the arrest of Christian Jews living there. Saul was full of malice, full of rage, full of threats, zealous in his commitment to the Jews and jealously, even violently, resisting anyone who threatened the Jewish religion. And so the question is, what on earth was stuck in his craw? Why did Paul believe he ought to destroy the church? Well, you can psychoanalyze him and argue that he was just a man who had real rage and an anger problem. And he needed some anger management. But that's not the heart of his issue. As a student of Rabbi Gamaliel, who had urged the Sanhedrin not to fight against God, this man was apparently more zealous than his mentor. There's no reason to assume that Saul was anything but a strict Pharisee who saw the way that is, the Christian faith as a serious threat to the nation of Israel and nothing less than a great apostasy from the true religion. And he would do anything to stop Christianity. Acts 22, Saul's account of his activities when he spoke to the mob at Jerusalem speaks of this, which says, Acts 22, verse 3, it says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you are today. He was zealous for God. And that's not hard to believe if you have a zeal for your God. Just think of, in the Old Testament, Aaron's grandson, Phineas. His zeal moved him to kill an Israelite man who fell into sin with a Midian, Midianite woman, a worshiper of Baal, a false god. And he's commended for his actions. And it, it was commendable because he was concerned about the, the glory of God. And because of that, he, he stopped the plague. You read in Psalm 106 verse 31, it says that it was accounted to him for righteousness for endless generations to come. And if that kind of zeal was displayed in the past, then it's not hard to see how a strict, zealous young man like Saul was like this. Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God, which was blasphemy. He was put on a tree, which was considered a curse from God, according to the law. Those who had followed this blasphemer claimed that the temple would be destroyed. Remember um, the 
maybe you remember the um, sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, how he basically spoke against the temple, and this was a huge offense to the Jews at that time. The temple was an icon. And so Saul undoubtedly thought of himself to be a defender of Israel. Stephen and other supporters of the way no doubt appeared to Saul as those who compromised the true religion. And as a faithful servant of God, he was obligated to heed the command of the law found in Deuteronomy 17 verse 7. You must purge the evil that is among you. These disciples were considered evil unless they renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. But oh, what a misguided zeal. Saul was zealous in a misguided way. And congregation, we too have to beware of a false zeal. He was a, it was a blind zeal, a zeal for all the wrong, all the wrong reasons. We have to beware of that. Now, zeal can be a good thing. If we know the Lord, we ought to be zealous. And sometimes we might wish that we were more zealous for the right things. But we must beware of a misguided zeal because it can be disastrous. It can bring disaster on the church. It can keep us from enjoying the fellowship of the church. Because for Paul, all his life, Though he was later saved, he would have to live with this fact that his whole life up to this point was a false zeal, which he says himself in Philippians 3. It's the same thing as being a slanderer. As he says himself in 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 and 13, it's the same thing as being a murderer and a destroyer. A man full of hatred and violence. Why? Because he had a misguided zeal. Now, congregation, you may say you've never been full of hatred to be a murderer. But Jesus said, if you hate your brother once, you're a murderer. Road rage once, murderer. Shopping rage once, murderer. Bitterness once, murderer. Tongue used once in slander, you're a murderer. And you may never say that you've had a false zeal. You, you say, I've never persecuted anyone. But what about chewing up a church leader? Or a brother and sister in the Lord? What about gossip? What about falsely accusing a brother? That's why the church sometimes is called to be it's called, rather, the army that ends up wounding, wounding itself with its own arrows and quivers. That's something that we're all capable of. So we must beware of a false zeal. For that was the source of Saul's white-hot hatred for a group of people who followed the Lord and had a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was... At that time, the, an enemy of God. But was this always to be the case? Well, the answer lies in the very heart of the Apostle Paul's teaching and ministry. It's God's grace in Jesus Christ. This man was really conquered by 
the Lord, which is what we must go on to see in the rest of this passage. And that leads us to our second point, the encounter with Christ. Reading this story beginning in verses 3 to 9, we've got to imagine what was happening. Here was Saul in his fury and rage, journeying in the wilderness. And the other accounts say it was midday in the desert, the hottest part of the day, when the sun was at its hottest. But a bright light, a light brighter than the sun, shone. The light from heaven. And the leader of the church, the Lord, who loves his church, and who felt every threat, who knew, who knew every imprisonment, said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in verse 8, he said, who are you, Lord? And you know he's afraid. And then the Lord said, I am Jesus. I am Savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus who was raised from the dead. I am Jesus who you sought to destroy. Not I was Jesus. I am Jesus. And it's hard for you to kick against the goads as the account in Acts 26 says. Something else that Jesus also said. And at that moment... When Paul said, who are you, Lord? And when the Son of God said, I am Jesus, in that moment, however long that took, Saul was confronted with at least four things in this statement from the Lord. One is that Jesus is alive and is Lord. A powerful truth. Something that came out of Saul's own mouth. Who are you, Lord? Two, Jesus is the Savior. And therefore, Christianity must be true. Three, Jesus and the church are one. There's a solidarity. Why are you persecuting me? There's a solidarity between Christ and his church. And four, Jesus is sovereign. Saul had spent all his energies and his time persecuting the church, chasing people down, and yet the Lord was still building his church during this time as the, world, as the church was spread out into the world. It's hard for Saul to kick against the goads. Again, from Acts 26, something else that Jesus said, which is not here. It's hard to kick against the goads. Goads are pricks. An ox goad is used to make an animal go in, in one direction. And a stubborn animal who will go in the wrong way, well, you use a goad and you point him back to the way he's supposed to go. It's a powerful expression to denote that a person's efforts against others would only injure himself. It was a goal for him to stand against Christ and against Christians. Now, there's a couple of encouraging things that we can see from this. I know, and you know, people who have been saved dramatically like this in a, in a very sudden way. We've heard or read stories of people who have been converted like this. This is God's grace. And you should never assume that every Christian needs to have a Damascus Road conversion. That's an ex this is an exceptional case. So don't 
Doubt your faith in the Lord if you cannot point to the exact day or hour that you came to the Lord, if you cannot point to that time, if you can honestly and wholeheartedly say today that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were enemies, we were, we were sinners and Christ died for us. We were enemies of God. But if we believe, if we have been reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can say that we're no longer enemies. And so we should rejoice today in the rich salvation that we have in Christ. And I trust that is your heartfelt confession. As you look at this passage today, this is your heartfelt confession. This is what you believe. But another encouragement from this is we should not be despairing for those who show no signs of being ready for conversion or who are lost in their sins. It's a mistake to think that our prayers for others are only effective if they have an immediate effect in some kind of openness or spiritual sensitivity. Paul was not open. Up to this point, he was completely closed and totally convinced that Christianity was false and needed to be wiped out. He was breathing out threats, and it took a powerful change, the change of Christ to work in him. It took God's powerful work. And that's what we see in verses 6 and 7. It says there's, but rise. So he trembling um, and astonished said, Lord, Master, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And verse 7 also says that the men were speechless. They heard a voice, but they saw no one. Nor did they understand what was said. It's much like hearing the sound of a a voice that they knew something was there, but they couldn't make it out. And they could not see someone, though Saul did. And there's more said here in verses 8 and 9. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. He was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Again, in chapter 22 of Acts, he said, I could not see for the glory of that light. Could not see for the glory of that light. And there's a lesson in this. This is an object lesson of Israel's blindness. Let me just take you back to some Old Testament background to understand this blindness. Being blind at midday, was a sign of God's covenant curse. You will grope about at midday, Moses wrote, as a blind man gropes about in the dark. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Isaiah 59 verse 10 says, We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. Verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. This is a lesson that Saul would never forget, reflected in his theology in Romans chapter 3. This is how wicked man's heart is, that it led him to put to death men and women who God considered righteous. That's how sinful we can be. That's how sinful mankind can be, because it became rather that a leading to a curse, a blindness that is, 
Not in a physical sense, but a madness that overtook them because of it. You see, God took a man who was spiritually blind, that he could lead others who were blind like him so that they would see the light of Christ. A powerful theme that's worked out in the rest of this book and in different parts of the New Testament. And just one other thing from this, this isn't just the conversion of Saul, though it is, isn't just the conversion of Saul. This text is also a commissioning of Saul. This is his calling. The Old Testament prophets are extremely important in understanding what's taking place here. Think of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. The prophet Ezekiel is commissioned by God to be a prophet after what? After seeing God's glory. Or think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is called to be a prophet after seeing God in the vision, the glory of God. Or Moses' call. Children, where did Moses receive his call? It was when he saw the burning bush, which was the glory of God. So Acts 9 is, is very apocalyptic, we could say. It's very much in line with what we read elsewhere. What exactly did Saul see? He saw Christ's glory. What exactly he saw of Christ's glory, we're not told. But seeing Christ's glory, he was converted, yes. But he also was called to be an apostle. Well, that leads us to what we see here thirdly in this passage, and that is the reaffirmation or the further confirmation of charis, which is the Greek word for grace, undeserved favor of God. Here we come to Ananias, and there's some irony here, certainly shock. Verse 10, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. It must have struck him that the Lord came to him but he shows his submission by saying, here I am. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire of the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Now if you had a, if you rather did a, a Google map search, then you would still find Damascus as a city in Syria. And there still is a street called straight there amongst all the, the old ruins, the different old gates that are still there. It was there that Saul was praying. Prayer is a bridge between us and God and between individual believers. And when Paul began to pray earnestly to Jesus, he came to Ananias in a vision to prepare Saul for his entrance into the Christian community. And with that prayer, he saw a vision of Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him. The Lord was communicating with Saul that his prayer was being heard. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard that many about this, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He knew about this, he knew that, that this was supposed to be done, but he's scared to, to listen to the Lord. And we would be too. 
And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. And that's all he had to say. For he is a chosen vessel. He's an earthen pot. And in that earthen vessel, he's going to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things that he must suffer for my name's sake. His suffering was not here in the sense of paying for his sin, but it was in bearing the name of Christ. He was going to bear the pain. Instead of persecuting the church, Saul is himself to suffer greatly for the name of Christ. What Luke has done here in verses 15 and 16 is in effect a summary of all that will take place in the next part of Acts. So here's Ananias' commission. He was sent. And then Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, doing what Jesus said. He, he said in the warmest language possible, Brother Saul. Now what did he mean by that? Saul was trembling, afraid. God said to him that he was going to send a man by the name of Ananias, which means God is gracious. Isn't that something here? And the grace is shown in that expression. Brother Saul. Not killer Saul. But brother Saul. You're another disciple. You have had an encounter with Christ, who is the Lord. And he has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he said that, verse 18 says that scales came off his eyes. Now what kind of scales were these? Whether these scales are somehow medically related to Saul's blindness or whether Luke is using the image to describe Saul's spiritual blindness or both, we cannot be sure, but... As a result of Ananias' visit, Saul was healed of his blindness. He received the Holy Spirit and was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of sins. Saul of Tarsus was now a follower of Jesus Christ and well on his way to becoming an apostle to the Gentiles. John Kelvin puts it this way, A wolf was turned first into a sheep and then into a shepherd. Paul really is an example of grace. He's a trophy of God's salvation. We said earlier that that in our introduction, that's essentially what he is. And we have warrant to say that because of an important passage, which is 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17, where Paul himself says, this is a faithful saying and and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's a prototype. For all who believe, he was the preeminent example of a sinner who had been shown God's mercy. This is what is shown so powerfully on that day of Damascus. It's amazing grace. We today 
are all like Paul by nature. If we've broken God's law at one point, we're guilty of breaking all the commandments. But God is merciful. The grace of Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Though our sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white and white as snow. Through the conversion of Saul, we're being reminded of God's demonstration of grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We're being told that all the baggage of our sin is something that we can't bear. Only Jesus Christ can bear it. Not because we deserve him to take it from us, but because God is rich in mercy. Showing grace to us and causing us to receive receive mercy. Not what our sinful hearts and lives deserve. And so congregation, in this conversion, we see the kingdom of Christ being extended through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we should expect that same power to continue as his word speaks to us today. May we respond with faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Amen.